Good morning, village. Let's find our seats, dig into God's word. It's good to, to worship together. Thank you, worship team. And to now worship by studying God's word together as we dig into Acts 21. Um, I want to tell, start with a story and told this a number of years back or a little bit about it. Anyone um, hike Angels Landing before in Zion? You know, it's a, a beautifully safe hike with no risk and danger or anything like that. I can remember going there. My kids were younger, and so now now my kids are a little older. But um, I had chosen to, to hike Angels Landing with one of my kids. And um, the others just bugged out once they saw it, because it's about a 1,000 feet high and with cliffs. And to get out to Angels Landing, you are going down a path that's narrower than this aisle, so probably half this aisle. And with, with 1,500 foot drop-offs on either side, which is probably not the safest thing you can do in the world. Um, but it has a cable you can hold on to, so you're good. And, um, and I can remember going up there. There's a three, four-mile hike, those have done it before, just to get to the beginning of Angel's Landing. The, up the, um, I forget what that, that's called. But what, what? Walter's Wiggles, thank you. And I remember down at the bottom, there was a sign that was a warning sign, right? Angel's Landing is a dangerous hike. And we get up to the top of Walter's Wiggles to to where you're about to cross over to Angel's Landing. And there's this whole sign, again, with a warning that even goes on to list how many people have died in the last 20, 30 years on this. And um, I'm like, yeah, this is good. I'm taking my son, who was, how old were you at the time? I don't know, younger. And um, I, I can remember the warning sign thinking, do we do this or not? But we see this beautiful hike there. And I had heard from a couple people in this church that it was no big deal. You lied. And, um, <laughs> and so, Joanne, and <laughs> let's just say at some points I was on my hands and knees crawling, um, but at that point, we chose to still go on. Now, were those warning signs, we could have taken those warning signs a couple different ways, right? We could have taken those warning signs as stop, don't go any further. And then we would have missed out on the amazing view that it was at the top. But then as I was thinking about it, and I was thinking about it with today's text, I, I was thinking about what if we were on that hike and we were going along, and there's some really sketchy places. It is not for the light of heart, um, just to warn you. And um, what if my son had fallen and fell maybe 20 feet down to a ledge? Would I have taken those danger signs as saying, you know what? He's good. He'll find his way out. It's dangerous. I don't want to put myself in that danger. Or as a parent, what would you have done? You, I, I don't know what you all said, but you would have found a way, right? You would have found a way down there. You would have found a way to rescue. Danger wouldn't have mattered to me at that point because my love for my son far supersedes it. That makes sense? Now, if it's my cat down there, good luck, kitty. Uh, <laughs> have a great day. I'm going back to the family. Um, but the, the, the ways that we assess risk are often in terms of what is, are the results In this case, what is the value of the thing that I'm after? If it's my son or a family member, I will move heaven and earth to get down there and save them. If it's a a pet, 
love my pet, not the same, and not worth risking my life for, but my family is. We come to today's text, and, and Paul is faced with a similar decision. Yes, not on a hike, but in reality, he is facing a life and death decision. Do I continue on the path I am on and risk my life? Are the results, are the rewards of that worth it? And we're going to find out that he decided they were for a couple reasons, because the Holy Spirit compelled him to go, we talked about last week, but because this was about the gospel going to save lives. This was about people hearing the gospel, and the Holy Spirit had put on him, you are to go to Jerusalem, and then you are to go to Rome, and you will share the gospel. And so nothing was going to deter Paul from sharing the gospel. And, and you can say, yes, if your son's on a ledge, that's life or death. But, but let's think about this. If someone has not heard about Jesus and doesn't know our Lord, this is about heaven and hell. This is, this is more than life and death here on earth. This is eternal life and death. Eternal life with the Lord is for those that know about Jesus and have accepted Jesus and have accepted his forgiveness and his sacrifice on the cross. And if we reject Jesus, we're destined for eternal destruction. That is what motivated Paul to keep going, I believe, in the face of difficulty. Turn with me to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. As we continue some very similar things from last week. Last week we talked about Paul's commitment to ministry, and he was willing to give his very life for the cause of Christ. And we, we, say, we ended last week by singing that song and just committing ourselves that no matter what, we are here for the cause of Christ. In today's text, that determination is tested a couple times. That determination is challenged because now Paul is going to leave Miletus and he's going to head on to Jerusalem knowing that this was the last time he was going to see some of these people he was talking to. So he's at the end of his third missionary journey. He knows trouble is waiting and the guy keeps going. And so we want to explore this today. And, and um, the summary of today's text, as disciples, we are to determinedly go, go where and do what God commands, no matter the danger. And so we come to verses 1 through 6 of Acts 21. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there's a black one under a chair right around you. We'd love for you to take that, take that home if you don't have a Bible, as our gift to you so you have God's word. But we're in Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. And the first thing we're going to see in this, and, and we're going to see the same thing a couple of times in today's text, but, but the first section here, point number one, the church focuses on danger rather than the spirit and tries to stop Paul from going. The church focuses on danger rather than the spirit and tries to stop Paul from going. They didn't get it. They didn't get the Holy Spirit was leading. They didn't understand what the Holy Spirit would do through this. And so they take the danger signs, this many people have died on Angel's Landing, and they say, don't go. You should stop. And then in the end of this section, we'll see Paul goes anyway. So verse 1, And when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and then the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its, its cargo. So in three verses, Luke gives us another travel log and just goes, goes, goes. I think I have a map here. I forgot the laser pointer. 
Um, but if you look at the red arrows, this is coming back on the third missionary journey. And about the center of your screen to the left, you see Ephesus and Miletus right below that. That's where this starts. Now, from there, he goes down to coast, and then he, he comes over to the little island of Rhodes. From there, they get on a different ship, probably one that can go across the sea, a heavier ship. And they come all the way over, almost all the way to Jerusalem. And they're going to stop at Tyre. So that's where we're at. That's our, our 30-second brief travel log. Because verse 4 gets into the story. They're in Tyre now, major port city. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, again, if you weren't with us last week, you can look back at last week, and we find that Paul was compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. So we have something that is seemingly contradictory. And we're almost to Jerusalem at this point, right? Jerusalem is down at the bottom of the red arrows. Um, and so he is almost there. They get to Tyre. And, and the first thing we see them do is they seek out the church. I think that's really cool. They go to a new, new town. And the first thing they do is they find other believers. This is not a church Paul founded. Um, some think he had never been there. I think Barnabas and Paul probably went through here on the way to the Jerusalem council and at least had visited this church. Um, but a, a couple of interesting things in Acts eleven nineteen, we, we do hear about this church and it says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch and where Tyre isn't, isn't listed there. That's the region. And so what we see when Stephen was, was, was killed for Christ, then the, the Christians scattered because they, they had nothing else they could do. They went to this region and started this church. Now, just for fun, do you remember who was part of Stephen's execution? Saul or Paul, same guy. Saul Paul was holding the coats. He was part of the execution. Back then was before he had come to Christ. His mission was to kill Christians and now he's coming and seeking out the church, and they are welcoming him. What a difference Jesus can make in our lives. What a complete transformation, a complete change. And we think of change as, oh, I'm going to stop doing this and start doing this, or I'm going to you know, start being honest, or I'm going to be a, a man or a woman of integrity. We think of that. Paul's change was, I'm killing Christians, and now... I'm helping make Christians. I'm helping found a church. And I, I, take, I take comfort in that because if, if the Holy Spirit can change Paul, he can change any one of us. And that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. So that's where, that's where Paul's at. And then you saw the phrase, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go. And there's, there's all kinds of discussion. What does this mean? Did the Holy Spirit change his mind? Is he given contradictory messages? And we know from the second half of this text, because it's two, two stories that are parallel to each other, what's probably happening here is they were hearing from the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit was saying, there's danger ahead. There's danger ahead. You're going to be arrested. You're, or Paul's going to be arrested. He's going to be bound. And the church misinterpreted that as the danger signs meant don't go. Like at the bottom of Angel's Landing, if I saw the danger sign and said, oh, we shouldn't go, I would be misinterpreting the sign. What is the sign there for? The, the sign is there for to, to, to help us be more careful, to help us know what's ahead, to help us be more cautious. 
And that is probably what the Spirit is doing here. We'll get into to more of that a little bit later. But this is probably more of a um, the Holy Spirit saying, Danger, Will Robinson, for those that go way back and understand um, that reference. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger, Will Robinson. But he's not saying don't go because he's already called him to go. But the church, and, and of course, naturally, and we would do this too, they share what's on their heart. They get this message, Paul's going to be in trouble in Jerusalem, and they interpret it and jump to the conclusion that the Holy Spirit's saying don't go. Not what he was saying at all. Rather, he was saying there's danger, be prepared for it, know that I'm with you through it, and let's go do this. But Paul knew, knew what God was asking because he was sure of the calling of God. Now, they had their idea of what seemed best. And, and they're focusing on the danger, and they're focusing on Paul's safety, as people that love him would. But Paul knew there was a bigger purpose. He was living his life for something more than safety. He was living his life for the cause of Christ, for making an eternal difference in lives, for souls to be saved and one for Christ. Oh, that's huge to understand why Paul is doing what he's doing. And, and I, I look at this, and, and right from the start, I'm like, what would I do if I was that church? I would probably jump to the same conclusion. You know, if, if I heard, okay, so-and-so in our church is going into trouble, and if they go there, they're going to be arrested, there's danger there, my first thing might be as well to say, don't go. And this is a lesson to us to, to try to, to discern the, the work of the Spirit through a variety of different ways to try to understand it rather than just misinterpret it and jump to it. And, and, and we can do this all the time. God, you know, we're really good at knowing God's will for someone else, right? And we're, it's really fun to tell them that. Um, God told me you should be doing this. God told me you should hire me. Uh, in college, before I was married, the joke was, God told me we should date. And, and the girls would say, yes, and he would have told me to if that was really from him. It's like, no, 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 God told me. Um, we're good at telling other people God's will, and that's a little bit of what they're doing here. But, but really the Spirit is leading in a different direction and just warning Paul. And, and so when we think of how do we tell the Holy Spirit's leading, how do we tell God's will, there's a couple of elements that need to be there. Number one, there needs to be fervent prayer. When we're seeking God's will for our lives, fervent prayer and listening as part of that prayer and asking God for direction and listening to the the impulses that the Holy Spirit places on us. When you're testing God's will or looking for God's will and saying, is the Spirit calling me to do this? The second thing you need to include is God's word. Is this consistent with God's word? The Holy Spirit will never ask you to do something inconsistent with God's word. Never. It, that, that's like huge red flag that says this isn't from God. But yet I've seen so many times where we compromise Scripture and we adjust Scripture because I'm sure this is what God wants me to do. And one of the other ways that we can test the leading of the Holy Spirit is through brothers and sisters in Christ. Going to others and confirm with other believers, is this what God is saying? This is what God's put on my heart. Is this what God is saying? We need to seek good advisors that show a sensitivity to God. 
And so all of things, these things together help us understand the Spirit's leading. In this case, if they had talked to Paul and found out the mission that God had given him, they would have interpreted the warning of the Holy Spirit differently. If they had understand Acts 1, understood Acts 1.8, that the, the gospel was to go to the ends of the earth, and that was the plan, and that was the plan all along, they would have interpreted what they had heard from the Spirit differently. And so for us, it's the same thing. We need to be in God's Word. We need to be in prayer. We need to be have godly counselors around us to say, what is God's will? So Paul's response. And I really love this response. And Luke is undoubtedly compressing it a little bit. Verse 5, when our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey. Basically, the way Luke writes it, Paul's like, that's nice, we're going. (laughs) Right? You you don't get much else except, I am sure this is what God wants me to do, we're going. Thank you very much. But then the rest of verse 5 and verse 6 are just a beautiful illustration of how the church operates, of how the church should come together. So we see Paul's dogged determination here, his resolve, I'm going, the work of God is worth it. I don't care if I'm in distress. I don't care if, if I'm going to be bound. I don't care if I'm going to be arrested because making inroads with the gospel is more important than his safety and his comfort. Just like if one of my kids was on that ledge, I would move heaven and earth and I would not care about my safety if I could reach them. That's how Paul feels about the gospel. That's how we should feel about sharing the gospel. I love a C.S. Lewis, I love a lot of C.S. Lewis quotes. In this one, he says, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. I am not encouraging that as an option for being happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. (laughs) And I read that and, and amen. If, if we are teaching you that Christianity is just for your happiness, just to be comfortable, just to have your good life now, we are lying to you. And we are deceiving you. Christianity is about doing the work of Christ, doing eternal work of Christ, eternal significance, and it's far better than a bottle of port or my happiness right now. And far more fulfilling. And that's... I think what Paul understood about this. And so the church in the second half of five responded and they're like, okay, I think, I think we're missing some stuff from the next story. Um, we see the same thing over, but their response is to send him off. Well, we departed, went on our journey and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. And said farewell to one another. Then we went on to board the ship and they returned home. And we see an incredibly touching scene, don't we? This church that Paul had just been for a week at this point. He had already developed such relationships that they come out. And and the wives and the children come out. And they're going to send them off well. And they're going to send them off with prayer. And, And again, it's a reminder, moms and dads, your kids can pray. Your kids can understand prayer and include them in prayer. Yes, at age-appropriate ways, 
but don't wait until they're teenagers to start praying with them. That is lost at that point. Well, not God can do anything. But, but start that young. We're going to have 24 hours of prayer starting out the new year. Bring your kids, even the young ones, and pray together because that's what, where the relationship with God is shown. But whole families come together and they come to the beach and they send Paul and company on their way. They knelt down on the beach and prayed. And so they, they commissioned them or they sent them off with prayer. And, and kneeling down, incidentally, for us, we're like, oh, they knelt and prayed. That was not the normal posture of prayer for them. The normal posture of prayer would be standing up with hands lifted up. You only knelt when this was a really serious emotional prayer. So you see Jesus kneeling at Gethsemane. When, when there's intensity to it, then they would kneel. And so you see just how fervently the church is supporting Paul. And understanding prayer is the only response they have to the difficulties they were told about. This isn't a throwaway prayer. This is a fortification prayer. And Paul let them pray for him. And so they sent him off well. They went as far as they could and they released him. They released him to God and they kept praying for him. Oh, we need people like that in our lives. People that will pray. People that will be diligent in that. People that will go with us as far as they can. People that will support us even when they think we should stay. That was what this church at Tyre was like. Then we get to 7 through 11, the next section. And the points are a little repetitive because that's, we're in a circular story here. The Spirit warns again that Paul would be in danger. So 7 to 11. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy. And we, we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And so this is about 30 miles south of, of Tyre. And they take the, the ship. They, they go there. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. And so again, 30 or 40 more miles south, they come to Caesarea. Caesarea, incredible harbor, built by Herod the Great, and um, a man-made harbor, one of the only ones of its kind. They had figured out um, underwater concrete was one of the ways they were able to do this. And so this was one of the major cities of the area. And we know from, from before, Philip the evangelist had settled here. This isn't Philip the apostle. This is Philip the evangelist. Luke is, is kind enough to let us know the difference. Philip the evangelist was one of the seven proto-deacons, right? One of the seven early deacons that we saw earlier in Acts. If you remember, he was also the one that went up and evangelized Samaria, took the gospel to Samaria. And just when he was at the height of ministry in Samaria, God said, you know what? Why don't you leave? Go down to this road in the south. And he ends up meeting a, a, a eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch on that road, explaining Isaiah to him, and he accepts Christ, baptized right there. And so Philip was an evangelist with special tasks sometimes. I love the end of that story because all of a sudden he disappears and shows up toward the coast. And he ends up um, doing work there and ending up in Caesarea. So that's the Philip we're talking about. Another side note Luke gives us, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while they don't play in the rest of the story, Luke is always sensitive to maybe marginalized people and showing that they're part of the church. And in this case, both singles and young ladies, he says, are an important part of the church. They're prophesying. They're, they're, they're taking a significant role in 
ministry and then ministering to others. And so then it goes on and we get into um, the, the warning again. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Remember coming down from Judea? It doesn't mean coming south like we think of in our, our terms. Jerusalem was in the mountains. And so he's coming down from the mountains about 60, 65 miles to Caesarea, probably from Jerusalem. That's where we saw him last when he was prophesying that there would be a famine. And he comes down, it says, and in verse 11, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. This sounds a lot like some of the Old Testament prophets, right? Ezekiel and some of the others that had to act it out. I thought of um, having one of you come up and giving me your belt and tying myself up up here. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I'm flexible enough to do that. And, um, and it really was more the sash that was around his waist, so probably a longer piece of material. But they, they enact out the prophecy, and the, the, the prophet comes and says, Paul, give me your belt. And he gives him this long strip of cloth. And then he, he does bind his feet in sort of hogtile style, binds his, his arms, and everyone is there seeing it. The church is there. Paul's company is there. Remember, he has a whole group of people from different churches taking the offering to Jerusalem that, that the churches have collected. So they're all there, and they see it. And, and the prophecy is there's danger. Whoever owns this belt, by the way, Paul, that's you, he will be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. Notice what isn't in the prophecy. What isn't in the prophecy is don't go. The prophecy, the spirit here is giving warning signs, graciously giving warning signs, not contradicting what he had already put on Paul's heart. And so the the spirit was warning for what was to come. Think for a moment, why does God sometimes warn us of what's to come? No, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes we're hit with a left turn in life and and we just have to trust God. But there are other times he warns us and lets us prepare for what is to come. Why do you think that is? Thoughts? (laughs) Can't say you didn't sign up for it. There's going to be persecution. Oh, no, why is there persecution? No, yeah, right? You were told. You had a warning. He loves us. So, so how do the warnings show love? I've got this. I think that's, that's a huge part of it. I know what's coming. I am with you. I am with you. And the Holy Spirit who is indwelling him is the one saying this. And so there's a grace to let no expectations. There's a warning that I think here actually helps clarify mission because each of these, when Paul is determined to go forward, helps him be sure of his mission. But then there's also this element of he wasn't surprised in questioning God because he knew God knew and he knew God was with him. And so the preparation allowed for a confidence in God. And I I know there's across the board in this room, there are so many different trials right now. And there are so many situations that we're like, you know what? I wish I didn't sign up for this. But God knows. And God knows what we're going through in each of your situations. And God has promised that his spirit is going to help you through that. 
Because what he's asked us to do is be men and women of the cause of Christ, not men and women of the trials. But to focus on him and to keep going with dogged determination and doing what God wants. Because he does have this. And he does know what's happening. Point number three is just one verse. It's their response. Paul's brothers and sisters in Christ again see danger as a reason not to go. You get in the pattern here? Holy Spirit warns. Others are like, don't go. You're silly. Paul's like, well, we're going to see that again. Verse 12, when he heard this, where when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Again, they care about him. And, and notice the we there. This is, this is both the church, but also the, the missionary party that Paul is with. This probably includes Luke at this time, because whenever we go into we, Luke is, is there. And Luke's saying, we didn't want him to go. We love him. We didn't, we didn't want to see him go into this danger. Now, for Paul, that has to be hard, right? Because not only is he hearing don't go, but now he's hearing it from his closest friends. Now he's hearing it from the people that are traveling with him. And so this represents a serious test for Paul. Will he lose his determination? Is he sure that this is what God wants? And we're going to find out in the next verses he is, because he says, I know, but God's going to use this. And, 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 and so we go on. This is amazing to me because if I had so many people telling me, oh, maybe you shouldn't be doing this, that'd be hard to go on. It'd be hard to, to risk anyway. But when we know what God wants us to do, we're willing to take that risk. And so we get to the last point, the last section, 13 through 16. Paul is emphatically determined to do God's work. Paul is emphatically determined to do God's work. And you'll see that in his tone here. And people got on board. And you'll see the result of that determination. Verse 13. Then Paul answered. So so they've just said, don't go again. You're going to be in danger. Paul answered. And there's more emotion to this answer. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You could translate verse 13 as stop it. Just stop. You're, 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 you're breaking, you're breaking my heart. The word there for breaking my heart is, was used for doing laundry. And you're like, what? No, they would take rocks and they would beat the material under the water against other rocks. And so he's using that word of you're beating my heart. You're pounding my heart over and over. And again, it's well-meaning friends, but they didn't understand the scope of God's calling. They didn't understand the depth of God's calling. And his response, I'm ready. And that's what the warnings did for him. He says, I'm ready. Not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you have a cause in your life worth dying for? Is the cause of Christ worth dying for is probably the better question. Because, yeah, like I said at the beginning, I would do anything to save someone in my family. Would I do anything to save a soul for Christ? This is the heart of Paul, and this is, should step on our toes like crazy. Because we have 
We, we have the truth of the gospel that will bring salvation to people. Without the gospel, though, without the gospel, people are still paying the consequences for their own sin. They don't understand the forgiveness of Jesus. They don't understand the eternal life Jesus has to offer. And that is a cause worth giving all for. And so Paul shows a determination here to put God's work above all else. Emotions wasn't going to stop him. His fear wasn't going to stop him. Other people's fear wasn't going to stop him. He was going to obey God's word. And we can struggle for all kinds of reasons to obey God's word. Maybe we don't like what it says. Maybe we don't feel it today. Maybe it's going to impact what I want in life. But there's nothing more important than following where God has called you. I don't know. I don't know if you've experienced God calling you to do something. And I'm not talking about becoming a pastor or going into ministry. Yes, that was part of my experience of God's calling. But maybe it's God calling you to share with your neighbor who Jesus is. Maybe God's calling you to be part of some of our outreach events and to step out of your comfort zone. Maybe God is calling you to stand up and say you're a Christian even at work and take that risk. But what is God calling you to do for his work? Because everyone in this room that's a believer, he's calling you to do something for his work. Every person in this room that knows him. And so what is that? I can remember back when, when I was um, considering becoming a pastor. And this is back in 95. Um, some of you are thinking, I wasn't born in 95. Stop it. <laughs> I remember back in 95, and, and I was in the business world, had a computer business, and it had a plan for how God was going to bless that, according to my will, and um, that I would use that for the church eventually. And I can remember when God put it on both Susie and I's heart that, no, God is asking us to go into ministry, to drop that, to drop that world, to go get a different training and, and to, to care for God's church and to shepherd God's church. And one of the things I remember is some of our unbelieving family and friends, they could not understand what we were doing. This was the strangest thing in the world. One was like, you're making good money where you are. Do you realize pastors don't make money? Now, you all have been gracious and you have supported our family, so that is not a critique of that. But in the secular mindset, this wasn't one of the ones that says you're going to have three jets. Um, this was someone that said, you're nuts. How are you going to care for your family? This is a bad decision. It is going to cost you financially. Why didn't that stop us? Because we knew this was what God wanted us to do. And when we know God wants us to do something, we know the Holy Spirit is part of it and he's got it and he'll take care of that. Yes, for you, that might not mean going into the past. Some of you, maybe it means becoming a missionary, becoming a pastor. But we were so convinced that's what God wanted us to do that nothing would deter us. Here 30 years later, nothing has deterred us. And that is the example we see in Paul. A dogged determination, I'm going to do God's calling even when my closest friends don't understand it, don't get it, because I know 
God will reward a work done for him. But in verse 14, we see the response. And I think this is, this is really amazing to see what God does with faithfulness, what God does with determination. Into 14, or all of 14. And since he would not be persuaded, nope, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Not my will, but yours be done. And so in the end, people saw the determination. They saw that it was God's will. And they said, let's partner with you. Let's get on board. Let's support you. And so they relented. They relented and supported Paul. This was Paul's Gethsemane. This was a time of, is this God's will? I don't want to go through this, but not my will, but yours be done. What's interesting throughout this whole story and throughout this whole journey to Jerusalem, there are so many parallels to Jesus, right? Jesus was convinced by, by the Holy Spirit that he had to go to Jerusalem. Paul was convinced by the Spirit he had to go to Jerusalem. They both knew they would be tortured and were probably going to events that led to the end of their lives. For Jesus, Peter tries to stop him. Remember that? Peter tries to stop him. He didn't understand. Jesus had a few nice words for Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Paul's friends try to stop him. Jesus would be bound by Jews and handed over to Gentiles to his death. Paul would be bound by Jews and and end up in Gentile hands to his death. Jesus was determined to do God's will above all else because he knew that his death on the cross and his resurrection was the only way to bring salvation to people he loved. Paul continued down a path because he knew the only way for people to have salvation was through Jesus Christ, and they needed to hear And then they were both arrested in Jerusalem under sham charges. We're going to see that for Paul. But they were willing to do all that for salvation. What an amazing example. Luke concludes with verses 15 and 16. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Again, Paul just goes, okay, we're gone. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us bringing us to the horse of Nansen of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. And this is, again, just Luke sort of ending the story with where they went. They went from Caesarea, the 60, 65 miles. For us, I know that's an hour car ride. For them, a couple-day journey. They went up to Jerusalem. And the point of those verses is Paul went. Paul went. He was doggedly determined to obey Jesus because there is nothing of greater value in this world. Everything else falls apart. Everything else we put our hopes and dreams in fails at some point, except trusting in Jesus. And so Paul went. And this ended Paul's third missionary journey. Satan is now going to try to stop the work in Jerusalem doesn't work. That's the next few chapters of Acts. But we end today by asking the question, are we willing to follow Paul's example? Are we willing to put it all on the line for Jesus? 
whether it be in, in whatever sphere you're in, whether that's your neighborhood, your work, your family. Some of you have unbelieving family members and you're about to go into the holidays. Oh, fun. And this is an opportunity to show the love of Jesus, an opportunity to share who Jesus is because there is no greater message. And I, I keep repeating that, but I'm trying to impress on us how important this was to Paul, that nothing would stop him. And so come this week and think of every interaction as an opportunity. Every interaction as a, a chance to show Jesus, to share Jesus. That's who we live for. We don't live for peace in the family. We don't live for great turkey. Not even for football. We live that people would hear the gospel. Let's follow Paul's example. I want to end with just a couple of, of statements. One's by Oswald Chambers. Anyone here read My Utmost for His Highest? Few people. It's a devotional book uh, of his writings that have been brought together, one for each day of the year. And, and I would challenge us as a church or challenge you to consider reading it in 2023. Each, each day is maybe a half a page. We're talking maybe a four to five minute read. But it is an incredible bringing us back to scripture. And, and think of the title, My Utmost for His Highest. And this is the story of Paul. I am going to give everything, my utmost. All of me is dedicated to lifting Christ up for his highest. He writes this in day one, actually. When we, considered what it, when we consider what it will cost others if we obey the call of Jesus, we tell God he does not know what our obedience will mean. Keep to the point. He does know. Shut out every other consideration and keep yourself before God for this one thing only, my utmost for his highest. I am determined to be absolutely and entirely for him and for him alone. Let me repeat that last sentence. I am determined to be absolutely and entirely for him and for him alone. Village, let's be determined to be absolutely and entirely for Jesus and him alone. There are warning signs. There is danger ahead. There will be trials. It will be hard sometimes. But God's calling us to the most incredible life we could live if we live for him. I'd like worship team to come up, and we'd like to end with a song. A song you can just listen to the words. We, it's a new song for us, but you can listen to the words. If you know it, you can sing along. But as we end this whole section of Paul's commitment to Jesus, I want to come back to why he's able to make that commitment. And the reason he can is because Jesus changed his life. He completely changed his life from a Christian killer to a Christian maker. And he knew that he deserved punishment and death for his actions before Jesus. But because Jesus paid the price on the cross, because Jesus took the penalty for his sin, he now has life and forgiveness and hope and a future. And that was so overwhelming to Paul, I believe, that that became part of his overwhelming desire for his utmost for God's highest. And so this song talks, it brings us back to a little bit about what Jesus has done in our lives. 
And I want to sing it because that's the foundation. If, if you aren't amazed at what Jesus has done in your life, you can't do the things we're talking about that Paul has done. So let's listen to the words. Let's be amazed at what Jesus has done. If you're here today and you, you, you're just learning about Jesus, we are so glad you're here. Listen and ask questions. Find out who Jesus is. Find out what a difference he can make in your lives. But let's listen to these words. We thank you for what you've done, especially this Thanksgiving week. Lord, we don't deserve your grace. We haven't earned your grace. But through your mercy, you have bestowed on us an offer of salvation, a chance for forgiveness, a chance to be clean, a chance for being right with you. And Lord, we owe you our all because of that. As you hung on that cross, as you took our sin upon yourself, as you breathed your last breath, you were purchasing our salvation. Thank you for that, O oh Lord, our Father. Lord, I, I pray that we would be your people, that we would be sold out for you. Lord, that we would give our utmost for your highest and see that as an incredible calling, an incredible opportunity. Lord, I can't wait to hear what you're calling every person in this room to do and how they do it these holidays, how they stand up for you, how they share the beautiful news of the gospel. Lord, may we be your people in your name.